0: Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to The Legal Talk Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast. I'm Meg Steinberg, a 2L at Syracuse University College of Law JDI program. This episode is sponsored by NBI. Taught by experienced practitioners, NBI provides practical, skill-based CLE courses attorneys have trusted more than 35 years. Discover what NBI has to offer at nbi-sems.com. Today, we are honored to have with us Harvard Law Professor Glenn Cohen, one of the world's leading experts on the intersection of bioethics and the law, as well as health law. He also teaches civil procedure. From Seoul to Krakow to Vancouver, Professor Cohen has spoken at legal, medical, and industry conferences around the world. His work has appeared in or been covered in major media outlets including PBS, NPR, ABC, CNN, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. Professor Cohen's current projects relate to big data, health information technologies, mobile health, reproduction, reproductive technology organ transplantations, and medical tourism, among other fascinating topics. He is the author of more than 150 articles and chapters. His award-winning works have appeared in legal, medical, bioethics, scientific, and public health journals. Professor Cohen is also the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of more than 15 books. Professor Cohen is a graduate of Harvard Law School. Professor Cohen, thank you so much for joining us today. So honored to have you with us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And that was a wonderfully warm introduction. I should take you on the road with
1: (laughs) me. Happy to join you. Well, I want to spend most of this podcast diving into the pandemic, from the FDA's legal requirements to federalism issues, state police powers, to schools and employers mandating vaccines and religious and medical exemptions of those mandatory requirements, the constitutional claims of the right to bodily integrity and informed medical choices, I don't need to tell you. These are just some of the topics literally changing hourly here in August of 2021. So I think let's just start by backing out, looking at the vaccine itself. The COVID vaccine falls under an emergency authorization. What does that mean legally and practically?
2: Yeah, so it's an emergency use authorization, and we should say COVID vaccines. And to be clear, only some of them have received even emergency use authorization status in the United States. So In the PrEP Act, which is a statute, Congress set up a mechanism by which, uh, in appropriate circumstances, FDA can give something emergency use authorization even without what's sometimes called full approval. Technically, with a uh, vaccine, the technical term is a BLA, a biologics license application. And essentially, um, it is way before you've completed the full review and the full paperwork, which requires, you know, uh, quite a lot of work, you know, for FDA to green light something for an emergency use, and it has several conditions that are required. It's still a very high bar, as I tell people, uh, these vaccines, the data for them have been scrutinized probably more than any other uh, scientific matter on earth, I would say, in terms of the number of epidemiologists, the number of people in drug companies, the number of people at FDA, the number of people in the public who are obsessed over this data. But, and this is where it gets interesting, there are some who believe. The fact that this is under an emergency youth authorization rather than a full BLA application makes a difference as to whether an employer or a university, for example, can mandate compliance with the vaccine as a precondition to attending a university or going into a particular job. So I have my views on that and if people have other views and I'm sure we'll get into it, but that is a relevant distinction. The last thing I should say is the EUA status, emergency youth authorization status, is a liminal state. In that, it looks as though the Pfizer Pfizer and Moderna have both filed for EUAs, I think, uh, for uh, BLAs. I think J&J may have as well, Johnson & Johnson. I'm not 100% sure on that one. Pfizer, I think the estimate is by FDA is that they will complete the process by September, October is what it's looking like now. Moderna will be behind that because they are still providing additional paperwork for the FDA. So my guess is, though, that by fall, at least one of the vaccines will have transitioned from emergency use to a full BLA.
1: So I want to jump right into what you already anticipated, and that is the vaccination precedent under Jacobson v. Massachusetts. And some argue that it does cover emergency authorizations. Some argue it does not. Just recently, the Seventh Circuit cited this case, said it was applicable. Indiana University can require vaccinations because the refusal to be vaccinated is not a fundamental right so where do you stand in this
2: yeah so here it's good useful so good it's useful to i think distinguish statutory problems versus is constitutional problems with vaccination the constitutional problems all those of you listening have taken con law no right only attached to a state actor right so when your employer a private employer decides to require or a private university decides to require vaccination there's typically not a plausible claim a state action so that all that we have is really a statutory claim when it comes to federal law. So we just park that over there for a moment and come back. So I think those are actually the more important challenges. When it is a state actor, though, of course, uh, the Constitution is uh, implicated. And the argument made in the Indiana University case was that it violated the constitutional rights of students who wanted to attend Indiana University without being vaccinated. And if I can quote from the opinion, so the district court opinion is quite long in an impressive sort of way. It's 101 pages. Uh, the uh, judge in behold was appointed by President Trump. So I think there's some ways in which they kind of tried to take it seriously. The Seventh Circuit affirmance of it, by the way, or the, the Seventh Circuit decision not to give a stay pending appeal much shorter. I think it's like all the four pages by Frank Easterbrook, right? But this is what the district court says. Even assuming, and this is in the conclusion, a certain, even assuming in certain respects irreparable harm and an inadequate remedy in law, the students here haven't established a likelihood of success on the merits of their 14th Amendment due process claim or that the balance of harms of the public's interest favors the extraordinary remedy of a preliminary injunction before a trial on the merits. We thus deny the preliminary injunction motion. Recognizing the significant liberty interest the students retain to refuse unwanted medical treatment, the 14th Amendment permits Indiana University to pursue a reasonable and due process of vaccination and legitimate interest to public health for its students, faculty, and staff. Today, on this preliminary record, the university has done so for its campus community. That leaves the student with multiple choices, not just forced vaccination. One might well hail a certain Emersonian self-reliance, self-determination, as preference, an unfettered right of the individual to choose the vaccine or not. But given a preliminary record such as today's, the court must exercise judicial restraint in superimposing any personal views in the guise of constitutional interpretation. Reasonable social policy is for the state legislatures and its authorized arms and for the people to demand through their representatives.' So, you know, uh, a little bit of gloss of kind of respecting the people, a little bit of a gloss of leave it for the legislature, what I often call faux judicial minimalism, judicial minimalism when it's convenient to do so. Right. <laughs> but for the yeah. most part, the court found this at the end of the day, Indiana University gave people religious accommodation, religious exemptions, I should say, gave people disability or medical contraindication exemptions and then said to everybody else, you know, what? if you don't want to do it, don't come to Indiana this year. And what the court said is, and the Seventh Circuit pushed this line even further, Seventh Circuit thought this was an easy case. They said, in Jacobson, we actually required people to be vaccinated for smallpox in 1905. And if you didn't, you face at that time a fine. And I think there was the possibility of jail time if you didn't pay the fine. And uh, according to uh, Judge Easterbrook, writing for the Seventh Circuit, this case is easier than Jacobson because we're not even finding you are using the criminal penalty, right? We're just saying it's a precondition to entering the university. So to me, this was not actually all that hard. To be honest, I think the hard questions constitutionally would have to do if a state or a religious uh, individual, or religious uh, sorry, a uh, non-religious institution were to push on whether to grant religious exemptions. So if they decided not to give any religious exemptions, or if they denied a religious exemption for a sincerely held belief. And this is interesting because I've been told that a certain uh, major Catholic university has taken the position that because the Pope has not said or has encouraged people to be vaccinated, that Catholic students that seek a religious exemption might be out of luck at that institution. And here, I think that this would be a place where I imagine the Supreme Court Based on some of the work it's done in the shadow docket relating to uh, church uh, exemptions from uh, generally applicable laws or seemingly general applicable laws for COVID-19 and also the decision in Fulton earlier this term, that would be a place where I'd be a little bit more worried about the constitutionality of all this. Not, not, I don't know, completely worried, but just a little bit more worried. But a basic one that offers disability and offers religious accommodations and exemptions. I think that the constitutional bona fides are pretty clear. And, you know, I think that my guess is that every court that decides the matter will come out that way.
1: How do those medical and religious exemptions work? I mean, as you touched upon with the, with the religious, you would have to prove you are devout. And this is a sincere part of your belief.
2: Yeah, so my impression is the way this is actually working is that most universities are actually taking a very light hand. Employers, I have a little bit less visibility, but I think for both part, taking a very light hand, such that if you request it, I don't think they're going to particularly interrogate you on the reasons or show me how. And in fact, there is case law. uh, And again, I'm not a religious law expert, but my understanding is that there is uh, case law Uh, suggesting that actually even untraditional religions, right, or religions that have very few followers or idiosyncratic religions, right, if sincerely beheld, if the reasons for it mirror the kind of uh, organizational of religion in favor of a creator and stuff like that, that the same constitutional rights are granted to individuals of those minority religions. But my understanding is that the vast majority of the universities that I've encountered are merely saying if you request it and you state it, you make an attestation, that'll be the end of the matter. On the medical examinations, I don't know uh, to be truthful whether they're requiring more than that, whether they require a doctor's note or the like. But from what I've seen, with the exception, again, of this Catholic university, I think it was quite interesting in taking this position. They aren't making this too onerous or too difficult. And I think that makes us more confident that they're not going to run into legal trouble.
1: There would also be some concerns, though, from the medical exemption side of things if someone asked too many questions of you, whether as a student or as an employee as as well, correct?
2: That's correct. Now, for the employer side, there's really a question about you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act here, and the EEOC has given some useful guidance in that you don't want to basically uh, engage in a uh, you know an inappropriate or unlawful kind of inquiry, a disability-related inquiry, if you can avoid it, right? So they've asked basically people to to kind of just inquire: Are you vaccinated? Sort of yes or no, and try not to ask more of that we're making plans for individuals. You know, I will say, so I started by saying there's the constitutional question, which I thought was easy, and the statutory question, which I think I also think is easy, to be honest, but a little bit harder, and I think where we'll see more contestation. And that is the question about whether, as a statutory matter, the fact that this comes up under an EUA, which is an emergency use authorization, rather than as a BLA approval makes a difference. And here we've had the Houston Methodist decision. That hospital basically required its employees to be vaccinated. The employees challenged saying it's under an EUA, you can't do that. We've also had an opinion that came out last week from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is not legally binding on private employers, but does kind of state the advice given to the president, which was a predicate for them announcing that they're going to have a vaccine vaccine requirement with, you know, some carve-outs and things you can do if you don't want to be vaccinated, uh, additional requirements for you for federal employees. And uh, essentially here, I will confess that I think the EUA statute is badly written. So I think, you know, the fact that people were confused about it, not that crazy, but essentially the claim was the way the statute was written by the challengers is that we cannot condition anything on getting a drug that is an emergency use authorization. Whereas the better reading and the one given by the Houston Methodist decision, but the one given by the OLC and the one that I've taken this position publicly, so it's not a surprise, is that it's really just talking about the informed consent process That all the provisions that people are pointing to, right, is about the informed consent process. What you have to tell people is part of the informed consent for the actual substance, but it doesn't purport to bind private actors or government actors beyond that. And to me, the proof par excellence of this is actually all the people who went to universities last year and had testing done, right, COVID testing, most of those COVID tests were actually authorized under emergency use authorization. So if it was really true that the statute prohibited you from conditioning anything on on using something that's under emergency use authorization, That would seem to suggest that all of the COVID testing done required by universities last year and going forward this year was also unlawful under the statute. And that just seems to me to prove that that can't be right. But even just as a pure matter of statutory interpretation, I think you get pretty quickly to the view that the EUA, non-EUA distinction doesn't make a difference. That all the provisions that people are pointing to are actually just about the informed consent process and what you have to tell people about the substance by the drug sponsor or by the vaccine sponsor. They're not purporting to bind outside entities, governments or universities or employers. And, you know, my favorite phrase here is, you know, Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. Right. Congress wanted to preempt a huge amount of background employment law. right. University law of education. It kind of knows how to do it. And I don't think it would have done it through this kind of oblique reference in the EUA statute.
1: So who has with all of these we're looking at that the constitutional and statutory rights but is there is there also a discussion about whose rights are greater the university or the student saying no I don't want to potentially have that I don't want to inflict bodily harm upon myself
2: yeah. So the, the, as a legal matter, we're not in balancing test kinds of territories. I mean, we are in the sense that I suppose if the university were to, you know, g- you know grab a substance off the shelf and say, OK, you must inject this. Maybe we would be in that territory where there would be a question about what the reasons why the university had done this, whether they're appropriate or not. But nobody thinks that we're we're in that territory. Now, I think as a moral matter and as a legislative matter, we can talk about the states that have tried to. Because all I've said so far, uh, if you if you listen carefully, has been about federal law. And here, maybe mm-hmm. I'll just introduce the state law piece, which is a number of states have basically introduced a set of statutes to block the operation of either mandates or, in some instances, what are so-called vaccine passports. I prefer digital health passes as a term, right, which are verification opportunities or requirements and have done that under state law. And the question becomes, well, what happens if a state like Florida, for example, is taking the position that you can't do this? Uh, Does the federal law preempt? And here the answer is the federal law probably doesn't preempt because while the emergency use authorization statute doesn't create a, a block, doesn't prohibit mandates, nor does it require it. Indeed, at the moment, nothing in federal law requires a private employer or a university or a state government to have such a mandate, right? So it's not clear what would uh, preempt on the federal side any state law to the contrary. So the end result is we have a checkerboard depending where the person listening to this lives. If you're in a state that has by state law prohibited mandates, as long as that passes whatever the bona fide tests are under the state's law, state constitutional law, state administrative law, there's not going to be a mandate at your university and your employer. Whereas if you're in a state like mine in Massachusetts that has not done that, then in fact, individual employers are able to do this as they choose. So it's not so much. So there is a balancing question, but the balancing has largely been set by state legislatures making decisions about how important this is to them. They may revisit those decisions as uh, the situation with the Delta variant changes and as numbers in ICU beds. But I think, you know. It's an object of political contestation. I have many views in terms of an ethicist and, you know, political philosophy, but I also think they certainly have the right under state law, if this is what your your governor and your legislature pass, right, unless and until there's a federal law to the contrary, it seems right to me that you can make a decision. And some people would say this is the genius of our federalism, you know, Brandeisian laboratories of experiment. I have to say, while I can respect that viewpoint, I'm a little less fond of it when we're talking about a uh, uh, pandemic and we're talking about a disease that doesn't respect the political communities and the distinctions between state lines, So to me, my fondest hope is that post-COVID may be a moment for us to rethink our federalism when it comes to public health, because certainly with contagious diseases, I'm not sure our typical thoughts about federalism are well suited for them.
1: We are speaking with Professor Glenn Cohen, Harvard Law School. We'll be right back. If you want to stay up to date on today's hottest issues, strengthen your knowledge with practical how-to courses, and learn the latest legal strategies and troubleshooting tips, then NBICLE has what you need. NBI courses range from basic to advanced and cover all legal disciplines. Learn online and on your schedule with our on-demand courses. Visit nbi-sems.com and save 50% on your next CLE course with promo code NBISTUDENT. And we are back now with Professor Glenn Cohen, Harvard Law School, and one of the world's leading experts on the intersection of bioethics and the law, as well as health law. Well, another specialty for you is the globalization of healthcare, and I can think of no better example right now than this pandemic and the efforts to vaccinate the world as well. From the perspective of developing countries buying first, what are the legal and ethical considerations of that? And what what more can we and should we be doing?
2: Great. So great question. So if you ask me, you know, there's been a lot of successes and a lot of failures. And I think historians will look back on this period. I don't know. Maybe the Great Depression might be the comparison of World War I, that there'll be tons of books World War II, tons of books, doing uh, armchairs, second guessing, speculating about people's motives and the like. And it's very strange to actually live in a period where you imagine this is like one of the great historical periods of my lifetime. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I going to work, I'm <laughs> giving lectures, right? I'm on the podcast, which is great. Um, so when people look back on this, I think one of the things that they will view as the greatest failures is that there will be thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of lives lost that could have been prevented with a different vaccine production and rollout process. In that, uh, we had uh, the COVID, and I should say on the the front end to say, the success we've had with producing the three COVID-19 vaccines we have authorized in the United States is remarkable. Had you asked me and many of the people who looked at the space as soon as we started this, right when we began the drug development process, the vaccine development process, are we gonna succeed? How long would it take? I think the quickest vaccine before that had been four years. FDA set a threshold of 50% efficacy. So you need to show it was 50% effective. In fact, the first two out of the gate, Pfizer and Moderna, were all in excess of 90%, right? So we, you know, if you're at the, the casino, like we are like, you know, scoring on the roulette wheel. We're hitting like the magic number, not once, not twice, like an amazing amount. And this is a, an undertaking that was the result of a huge amount of coordination of hard work, of investment uh, by Operation Warp Speed, but also prior investment. DARPA, for example, invested in the Moderna vaccine, uh, the Moderna, I should say, mRNA platform many years before, before uh, COVID, right? So we spent a lot of money, a lot of capital, and a lot of leadership on this. So that's, that's all for the good. That's the good side of the story. The bad side of the story is... Once we began producing these vaccines, right, we did not distribute them in a way that might seem sensible to an ethicist, which would be in order, you would equalize life years across different populations and you would essentially distribute it in such a way that you would try to maximize the number of life years saved, right? or number of lives saved if you don't like uh, life years, right? If we were to have done that, we would have distributed vaccines in a very, very different way. In the U.S., we have been gifted with a wonderful medical infrastructure with a huge number of ICU beds per capita compared to a place like Lesotho or Liberia or something like that. So if all you wanted to do was to prevent suffering and death, you would have allocated vaccines in a way that were sensitive to these differences. That's not what we did instead countries that basically got in early that had a role in the production process had a role in the funding and made uh, advanced commitment kind of you know to purchase got to the head of the line other countries didn't and on the back end we have the covax consortium, which is, you know, trying to va- vaccine, I think it's 10% of the world's population. That that's their kind of goal for, for, for this year. I should double check. But I think it's, it's something like that, buying these vaccines, but we've seen huge amounts of slowdown. And in particular, once India hit its uh, troubling period of infections, the Serum Institute, which is one of uh, the biggest producers of vaccines for the world, again became nationalist. So we'll, I think, look back at this period of one of vaccine nationalism, where we engaged in a lot of hoarding behavior. And we're seeing this right now where there's discussions in places of Israel of doing a third booster shot, which to be clear will reduce, or there's evidence, amassing evidence, may marginally reduce the risks for some groups where large parts of sub-Saharan Africa, the vast majority of people haven't had a single dose, right? So we have Europe, Canada, Israel, uh, the UK, uh, the United States with lots of doses, more doses than they need per population, then we have large portions of the world that don't. And it gets worse from there because it's not just the doses of the problem, it's the freezers, it's the distribution networks and the like. And the end result is we're gonna have huge swaths of the population who will not be vaccinated probably till 2023, 2024. And it's entirely possible that we'll have new variants that emerge from there or elsewhere uh, that actually are even more lethal or spreading more, cause more preventable deaths. So I think we'll look back at this, You know, people will look back at our generation with a little bit of horror at this. What could have been done differently, right? It's an interesting set of questions. Perhaps there could have been, as part of Operation Warp Speed and funding and the like, commitments to fair distribution as part of the intellectual property development, licensing. There's lots of pushback on the TRIPS waiver. Of course, the United States surprised many by taking the position that the TRIPS waiver should occur, but it's been basically blocked by a number of other countries. And even with the TRIPS waiver, there are some questions about, you know, nobody who thinks that there should be the TRIPS waiver thinks that that's going to do it in and of itself, that's a magic bullet. We need to build capacity. We need to think about training. We need to think about distribution and the like. And on this, I think I'm I'm hopeful that there will be marginal improvements in this direction, but I just don't see us going down a path where we actually make good on our best ethical impulses and what we ought to be doing, which would be a much more robust vaccine sharing.
1: Well, and the WHO seems as though the World Health Organization is somewhat policing that in the sense that they're saying, Before you give that booster, as you were just mentioning, let's make sure more of the world is vaccinated. Is that just more of an ethical reminder from them or do they have, is there a level of authority above that?
2: You know, they are a group that uh, largely, I think, they give a lot of moral leadership. They got a lot of technical leadership and a lot of coordination. But essentially, if the United States tomorrow were to to start giving out third boosters and we have, you know, know, third dose boosters, Pfizer has, you know, kind of signaled they want to do this. There's nothing that the WHO could do, I think, that would really prevent that, right? There might be some condemnation. Perhaps there might be some trade retaliation by some, I suppose, is a possibility. That's not so much WHO. It's elsewhere. But to me, this is soft law. This is international norms. This is politics rather than the idea that the WHO can prevent the US from doing this when the US is the site is for the intellectual property and the manufacturing capacity.
1: So where do we go from here in that intersection of healthcare law and ethics and access and fundamental rights and where what have we learned from this that we can take and I know there are many many lessons but if you could just give that 37,000 foot view
2: Sure. Okay. So one lesson we've learned that I don't think we've had a chance to talk about so much is that actually the way the pandemic is being experienced by different communities is quite different. And we saw this, I think, especially in the early days of vaccination, but even before that in the United States, that racialized communities, vulnerable communities, right? Quite a different reaction, quite an important need to meet people where they are and to have leaders from those communities be the ones who are doing outreach. And again, we're much more successful now, but some would say we failed even within the United States not to uh, prioritize some of these communities for more attention, more allocation. So that's one piece of it. You know, a second piece of it, I think, will be viewed as the politicization of public health. And I'm not enough of a historian of public health to be able to say, you know, you go back to the 1900s, right, like the 18, 1890s, 1900s, smallpox, We've actually seen a lot of this movie before, right? We had vaccine mandates put in place by employers. We had verification. We had actually a show the SCAR campaign because that was one of the, it was too easy to forge the documents, but the actual small park SCAR left a nasty SCAR. The vaccination process was something that employers, educators, education institutions kind of required, right? So, but this time scene, I'm sure it was political then. I mean, Jacobson made it to the Supreme Court, right? But I think the fact that this has hit the shoals of really true red-blue divisions in the United States is so unfortunate. We've seen these kind of fissures that are libertarian to some extent, but I consider them to be a little bit of a faux libertarian and that this is not – I think we do have seatbelt laws, for example, and helmet laws, but to me, this is not that. You might have problems with that. I don't, but you might have problems with that. But this is different. The ability to swing your own fist ends at my face and the fact that people here are engaged in activities that put others at risk. And my own view is that libertarians should like vaccine mandates and should like at least vaccine verification. Something like New York is doing, which is saying in order to get air, you have to show uh, this credential. And the reason is because as a, pol- as a principle of public health, it's about the less restrictive alternative. If the alternative is saying we're shutting down indoor dining, we're shutting down in-person schools, right, if we have a less restrictive alternative that can be keyed more directly to the risk you pose or don't pose or are posed to you, then I think we're kind of, you know, doing the right thing, even from a libertarian perspective, in trying to kind of risk reticulate in a very careful sort of way. But I've been saying this a long time and people who have opposite sides of this debate, I think, uh, don't agree. And maybe that's the last thing I'll say here is that anti-vax populations and anti-vax ideology, I think before this period of American history, it was easy to treat them as a relatively fringe ideology and somewhat uh, dismissively, I will say. And in some ways associated with the extreme left more than the extreme right, you know, naturalism, anti-GMO, this kind of stuff. What we've seen, though, I think, is that either pre existing, it's a much larger population than we thought, or the political discourse is inflamed and reified in such a way that we're having, I think we're going to see beyond COVID, whether this has implications for mumps, measles, rubella, other kinds of vaccination going forward. And the last thing I'll say, and this is truly the last one you asked me, 37,000 feet, of course, <laughs> blabbering on, is this point I made about the global aspects of this. That had we had an effective uh, sharing of information, of restrictions, coordinated of vaccination earlier on, my own view is we total up the death toll at the very end, we'll be talking about an order of magnitude difference compared to what we might have achieved if we had more of a commitment to global justice.
1: And I do have one final concluding question, and that is because I do, I love to find out just that personal component, like if you could do law school over again, what would you change? What would you do? What would your advice be for law students today?
2: Yeah. So first of all, I had a blast in law school. And that's been my first advice. I often joke that I part, so I grew up in Canada and I moved here and, you know, I didn't learn how to play beer pong until I arrived at the Harvard (laughs) Law School. Uh, I, I must have lived a very sheltered existence, but I partied more my first year of law school than just about any other year of my life. And I think, I'm not worse for it. I won't name the professor, but we discovered that a professor of ours had never done jello shots. And so for the last day of class, we made the entire class jello shots and brought oh that. And the faculty member did, in fact, partake in the jello shot, which was <laughs> after the class ended, to be clear, right? The entire section. So that's just to say you should have a blast. Second thing I'll say is so I'm first gen, neither of my parents finished high school, right? I came here not knowing a lot about. Uh, various parts of the legal academy, law school, lawyers. It's one of the reasons why we created this great course, Zero L, that we have at a lot of law schools in America now to try to demystify some of it. But, you know, the most important thing to keep reminding yourself if you find yourself in the same situation is you belong, right? It's hard to get into law school at moments when you have reasons to have self-doubt, when you have moments of stereotype threat. It is a moment to just remind yourself that uh, you really do belong here and you really can do really amazing things and the last thing i'll say and this is a little bit more technical and i tell my one else this when i teach them SIP pro is my own view is that students spend way too much time prepping for class and way too little time on the back end so i say if you're going to have 10 hours for a particular course in a week other than being in class i would recommend taking no more than those five for the prep even if you feel like you're going into class a little shakier you're going to box your cold call and spend the five hours on the back end Uh, on on reviewing and understanding and consolidating. And that's because the way law school is taught in many places by many teachers is a kind of magic show. Your eye is directed to the wrong thing and then all of a sudden the rabbit pops up from everywhere. And you can do as much preparation as you want, but you're not going to spot where the rabbit's going to come pop up. But after you've sat through the movie the first time, it's much more easy to consolidate all that you've learned into boxes now that you know what the boxes look like. So my own view is less prep more post class, even if that puts you in the position where you off your cold calls or something like that. People don't remember, faculty members don't really care. As long as it seems like you put in a good faith effort, that's probably good enough. And you probably have way, way, way more anxiety about it than you really should.
1: I should have spoken to you a couple of years ago. <laughs> That's great advice. Well, thank you so much. We could speak for hours. I I didn't even get to half the questions that I had for you, but thank you for all of your time today. Professor Glenn Cohen, Harvard Law School, thank you for joining us. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Law Student Podcast. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also reach us on Facebook at ABA for Law Students and on Twitter at ABA LSD. That's it for now. I'm Meg Steenberg. Thank you for listening.
0: If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA accredited schools can join the ABA for free.